Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. I enjoy the woods. I actually love where we live. I, I walk the woods. I walk the beach a lot. And I enjoy walking in the woods up close, seeing the trees, the ravines, the creeks. And there's a value in seeing things up close. <clears throat> but sometimes it's also good to go up to the hills and look at the forest from afar, to see the beauty from a distance. And to give you an understanding, like not only how, how the whole environment works in detail, but how it all ties together. Okay, I'll get we're there. So <clears throat> I'm gonna do that today. We're gonna read a lot of scripture because we have to look at 2 Corinthians 3 through, 3 through 5 as a whole. And later on, people may go back into some detail of stuff I'm skipping over. <clears throat> but for what I want to get across today, we have to see the flow. I'm bringing this up because even though Paul says we talk plainly, Peter had a very different opinion. <laughs> and sometimes I do too, where he says, Paul, not knocking Paul, saying he's so smart and he writes of these things, these godly things, but he says... Sometimes they're hard to understand. And unlearned people twist what he says. Because sometimes what Paul says seems to be contradictory at a glance. And you have to go deep or you have to look at a big picture. Because <clears throat> if you just pull two sets of scriptures out, even within the letter of 2 Corinthians, in fact, even within chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, they will seem contradictory. So we're going to go through this. In, in a way where I'm hoping it won't seem that way to you. I was raised in a denomination that had a certain take on 2 Corinthians 5. And their take on Corinthians 5 is how they justified saying, we're saved by grace, but you have to go through a means of grace. Then they had all these rules and regulations and rituals because they said that, were the, that was the means to grace. So it's a combination of grace and works. And, and I really want to be careful here because... Well, I'm going to be really thorough with scripture because I want you to really see how this is built. This is almost like being in Bible school again. Because it's really important to me, because I don't say this frivolously, because there are billions of people in denominations that look at this way different. And then I have other friends, evangelical friends, who won't even touch the scripture I'm getting to because it, it, does, it goes away from this whole, um, what did you guys say in the prayer room? Rainbows and unicorns. Goes against the idea of rainbows and unicorns. And so, <clears throat> so 2 Peter 3.16 is where Peter talks about Paul can be hard to understand. Now remember, Paul's being attacked by those who focus on visible, external, and temporary things. And we're going to see this through the scripture. But I, because I've gotten to read the scripture like 30 times this last week, I have an advantage. So I'm just pointing out to you what's coming. So he's going to talk a lot about what is visible, what's external, what's temporary, and how that isn't where our focus needs to be. We have to focus on what's going on inside hearts, what's unseen, and what is eternal. And again, along with his message being attacked, he's been attacked and been told he's inferior to more eloquent people, these other leaders who can brag of spiritual experiences and who carry credentials. In fact, the whole way three starts. <clears throat> Chapter three of Second Corinthians starts with, am I committing myself 
Are we committing ourselves to you? Do I need a letter from you? Do I need a letter to you? As she says the other way, do I need a letter to you? Do I need a letter from you? And it's really, he's saying, look, again, look at this relationally. Why would I need any stinking letters? You know, it's like, we don't need no stinking badges. He says, you are our letter. And you, he first says, you are written on our hearts. Well, he's really saying, you are a letter written on our hearts. Then he goes on to say, you show you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. So I shouldn't need a letter of credentials because I don't need something written out. Your heart, your life is, is the testimony of our ministry. Yeah. Written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, which you can't see. Not about stones you can touch and see. Such confidence. What confidence? Paul has confidence on knowing who he is, who the ministry is. I mean, what it's all about. Um, my concern with Christians, what it can happen is you can say, we can do nothing without Jesus. I agree. But we aren't without Jesus. As uh, I think the first place I read it was Andrew Murray once. My concern isn't that you're not. My concern is not that you don't realize you can do nothing without Christ. My concern is you're doing nothing with Him. Is is there something here that we have to get a hold of? Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. Our confidence comes from God. So He's saying, I'm not incompetent. Now I realize my confidence comes from God, but it is there. Because again, he's approaching this relationally, but approaching it relationally doesn't mean he goes all timid and he isn't assertive about the truth. Because he has other guys who are bragging about who they are, and he's saying, I won't brag about who I am, but I know what Jesus is in me. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. So there's the letter, the power, because again, some of what they're teaching is kind of mixing religion into this whole belief. And he's saying the letter of the Old Covenant, and I, I do want to be careful here because people misunderstand this. Unfortunately, we call the Hebrew part of our Bible the Old Testament because it includes the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. But that is not all that is in the Hebrew part of our Bible. So what we call the Old Testament has a lot more than the Old Covenant in it. And the reason I say that is because the Old Covenant is obsolete. It doesn't mean the Scriptures are obsolete. Because the Scriptures actually give you a, the total story of what God's doing. It was not like God had plan A, it failed, he went to plan B. Like Ephesians says and others say, from day one, God's desire was a people for himself, a multi-ethnic people who loved each other and reflected God's glory so much, he was the bragging rights to all of the universe that he has always wanted a people reflecting his glory. Never has changed. He did an old covenant to teach us how we don't get there, to see that in ourselves and our strength, that don't work. And he's going to even refer, because even though this was a mixed, uh, a mixed body of Jew and Gentile, when people came to the Lord, they would have been taught with Old Testament scriptures. And they would know the book of Jeremiah. They would know about Moses. And he's going to allude to this whole idea. Jeremiah says, there is coming a time where my laws will not be written on stone, but on your hearts. My new covenant is, the old covenant, I want you to see, it doesn't work to have a letter on stone for you to obey. Because you can't obey it. My new covenant is, I will come inside you, 
and maintain the covenant from within you. Basically, God's saying, you can't have a covenant where I keep my part, you keep your part. So we're throwing, so we're, we're using that to teach us, because the real covenant is, I keep both parts. I keep my part, and then my spirit in you writes on your heart to keep your part. Okay, that's a lot of words. Okay, the letter kills, spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that bought death, because that's the old covenant, showed us that we're worthy of death, it, which was engraved on letters of stone, again, the Ten Commandments. If it came with the glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory, again, he's bringing up eternal, temporary, seen, unseen. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? You know, at one time I heard someone say, wouldn't it be awesome if we had the original tablets that, that the Ten Commandments were written on? Well, I said, first of all, it would be very glorious because it'd just be a bunch of stones. Because Paul, or, sorry, Moses actually broke that. Like, when he was first written the tablets of stone, he got mad with the whole calf and all that thing, remember? And he threw them down and broke them. So he had to go to God and have them rewritten. So, first of all, we wouldn't want the original. We'd take the second copy. Even with the second <laughs> copy, that is not glorious. It says it is more glorious what's written on our hearts than if we had these tablets of stone. Because this just visible material. And he brings up this thing because basically when Moses was in the presence of the Lord, he'd start to glow. His face had shined so much people wouldn't look at him. So he put a veil on. And then Paul tells us something that's not in Exodus. So he put on a veil to cover the glory. But then he says something interesting. <clears throat> if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious now has no glory in comparison to the surpassing glory. And if what is transitory came to glory, how much greater is the glory of which, sorry, the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. He is bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. This is a little light we don't get out of Exodus. So he puts on the veil because people don't like seeing the light shining. Then as that light fades, he keeps putting on the veil because he doesn't want them to see that the light has gone away because since they were governed by what is visible, he knew if they see the glory go, they quit listening. And that's, I mean, Paul's actually not even being that subtle. Like his listeners would know, the way you're giving me flack is because you're trying to live by what's visible. Because we do see that when, when the veil part ended, there were times that people did not listen to Moses and it did not go well because they were looking at the temporary and making it made themselves complain and they weren't seeing the, the whole reality. <clears throat> but their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains. He's going to make a play on words about veil a lot here. <clears throat> the veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's important, and I'm going to refer to it again. We don't judge people who don't understand things. Because what we believe is that our gospel is true, and, it, and it's written in many places. Without Christ, your mind is cluttered. And I'll, I'll, it'll actually say this. The enemy, the real enemy, not the people. People who are not believers are not our enemies. But the ruler of this world, our real enemy, 
obscures their mind, veils their thinking. And until Christ removes it, it is not removed. Okay? Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, now I want to have this clear. <clears throat> I wasn't asked this, but I wanted to say because you want to disagree with me. Um, none of us came to the Lord knowing exactly what we were getting into. Isn't that right? <laughs> like, did you really know what it was all about? No, because there were times in our life, including salvation, our first entry to the Lord. It's not because we understand it got so smart all of a sudden. The turning to the Lord came first. Then comes the clearing of the mind. I mean, how many times have we walked in life where it's like, God, I don't even know what you're doing. All I can do is look to you and obey you. And it wasn't until after we obeyed. It wasn't until after we took the humble step of faith. Because faith requires humility. It's saying, God, I rely on you, not my best thinking. And because of that step of humility, then the veil's removed. It doesn't go the other way around. <clears throat> now, the Lord is spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sing that a lot. It's quoted a lot. The times I think we miss what it really is saying. So, let's look at the whole passage. The Spirit of the Lord is, where the Spirit, sorry, the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. We have this freedom. And I put the word mirroring there because uh, NIV talks about contemplate, which isn't really bad. But other, other translations bring home the idea as he's saying, we behold as in a mirror. Like we are looking intently as into a mirror. And we're not seeing just ourselves. We are seeing the face of Christ. And focusing on dwelling on the face of Christ, on who he is, that changes us. So where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. It is not freedom to go party and do whatever we want. It is not a freedom to sin. In fact, if you really get this, Christ didn't come to make us free to sin. We already had that, because we had more than freedom to sin. That's all we had. We could not help do anything but. So when he brings us freedom, he brings us freedom from that life. He breaks the chains not to sin, because we could sin really well without him. It's all we could do. He's saying, no, we have a freedom. The veil has been removed so we can really see who he is. And that presence in our lives transforms us. <clears throat> Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we renounce secret and shameful ways. I've heard people quote part of this and they think it's like, well, those evil cultic people doing weird things. No. And, and this is important because later when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're going to refer back to this. He says, we do not use deception or distort the word of God. I do not use eloquence. I do not go for itching ears. I do not try to sound really impressive. I just speak plainly what is true. On the contrary, by setting forth truth plainly, we commend ourselves to God, to everyone's conscience. But this is an important thing. It's not just to your conscience. It's to the sight of God. And I want us to remember this. Stuff. I don't want to forget this later. Living by seen and unseen is Paul's really making an overall theme that's going to come out way clearer even later. Not, not today, but in other verses later. Leaders who build unwisely get busy trying to impress people. Paul is saying, I live by the unseen in the sight of God. Because I know my real audience is him. And later he's going to make a really home of like, we really care about what God thinks. 
more than others. It's, it's a different way of looking at everything. <clears throat> Even if our gospel is veiled, because people are saying Paul's too obscure, it is veiled for those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They don't need us judging them for how they think. The enemy has blinded them. And at times he blinds us. We don't need to jump on our, on our friends because they don't see things. We have to pray a certain way. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says, you look at these credentials and these guys speak and they're impressive. And you go to church on Sunday and he impresses an audience of 20,000 and everybody says, what an amazing teacher. And Paul says, blah. Forget that noise. I don't want you impressed with me. I want you impressed with Jesus. And specifically, I want you impressed with Jesus in you. Because it gets back to that face-to-face -face with Christ. So we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For, the God who, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, may his light shine in our hearts. I don't need to be busy judging people. I need to be praying that God's light shine in their hearts. And then I need later, I'm not going to get into this a lot today, but it comes later. I need to be asking God, Holy Spirit, how do I participate with what you're doing in their life? Not judging them, but saying, you want their light in their, you are working already to shine light in their hearts. How do I cooperate with that? <laughs> to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This term, face of Christ. I've shared with you before about how we are fueled by the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is the fact that his face lights up to see us walk in the room. There's a lot in scripture about connecting with God, but it actually uses the literal word, getting to be face to face with God. God's face shines on you. The face of God brightens you. This whole idea is, my goal is not to impress people, Paul's saying. My goal is for you to look into his face, to reveal his face. I, I had a pastor's uh, teachings so I was watching, I didn't go to this conference, but I was watching the teachings. And it was a big name teacher. And he's talking about, you know, pastors, two to three days a week, I don't get involved with people. Like Monday is my day off, maybe Tuesday or, and Wednesday I'll be in the office, but I, I'm away from people because we as the pastors and leaders, we're like Moses. We need to go up to the mountain and get the law and the message of God and come back down the mountain and deliver it to the people. I know he's famous, I won't tell you his name, but you know, everybody says he's a famous preacher. I'm sorry, he's in the wrong testament. That is actually not the call. Paul is saying, my goal is not that I go to the mountain and then come and impress you with my delivery. My goal is you go to the mountain. We have a new covenant where, no, God's plan is not that I be face to face and tell you what he's saying. Mine is to teach you and encourage you. You go be with God and get face to face and hear from him direct. Because he's saying these other guys that are impressing you, they're making followers of themselves. I want you to be engaged directly to Jesus. <clears throat> but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side. I don't hear the prosperity doctrine people use in 2 Corinthians very often. Because they talk about, well, God wants you rich. Send us $1,000, he'll give you 10 Look, I got a Rolex, I got a plane. I got, I got 3 million people following me on whatever, Instagram. And Paul's credibility is like, no, listen to this. 
We are oppressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not, not in despair. We're persecuted, not abandoned. We're struck down and not destroyed. It reminds me of this old song. <laughs> we are always carried around in us, sorry, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. The life of Jesus isn't revealed in my body by impressing you with how successful I am. My weakness in him is driven me to a place where he's all I hang on to. For we who are, who are alive and are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. He's saying it twice. I guess it's pretty important when he repeats himself so much. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. In other words, I recognize the hardships I get is part of what God does to make me the minister he wants to bring you life. So I'm not going to tell you all my success stories and how I raised whatever, how I, how I can now buy a Learjet, and you need to give me more money so I can get a bigger one. No, that is not the gospel. <clears throat> It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. So he's speaking because he believes. Because we know, real fancy Greek word, the word is no. Like, he is certain of this. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Does that sound like the statement of a person who is unsure of him going to heaven? So he is confident, and I know that after this life, I'm being raised with him. And really, frankly, sometimes this life sucks so much. Paul, and actually we talked about this in chapter 1, and he's going to bring it up again a few more chapters, because he's repetitive in Corinthians. He's saying, look, we despaired a life, and all we can hang to is... Well, this, this kind of sucks, but I know I will rise with him. I know I will be with him. Yes. I know that. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, again, the outward compared to the inward. Outward's temporary, inward's eternal. We are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles and that's the reason why I think you could say they were light, because when you read them, they aren't all that light. And he does, and we don't even read all of his problems in Acts. There are some he refers to in this letter that Acts didn't cover. The reason they're light to him is he knows they're momentary. All right? Like he says, he knows this life is a vapor. It, it quickly comes and goes. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So what, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know, there's this word again, we know. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What does he mean by this earthly tent being destroyed? Yes, yeah, say it loud. Yes, his body. So if your body's destroyed, what happened to you? You get to go home. Yeah. So he's saying, I know if they kill me, I mean, he says this later in Philippians, which I find is interesting, because that's, Philippians is where they also have this other weird doctrine. But what they forget is, in Philippians 1, he says, I'd actually rather they just go ahead and kill me, because I know for sure I'm going to heaven. So later on, when he says, I press on to Christ, I, I, I want to conform to his sufferings, as if, you know, so that I could attain 
to the resurrection. This is what he talks about. Then he says, not that I've already attained this, already have this, but I press forward. And they say, well, look, Paul isn't even sure about the resurrection. He says, not that I've already attained this. And really, when you read it in the Greek, you say, no, what he's saying is, I'm not dead yet. So I'm pressing forward, not that I've already completed this race, not that I'm already done, I ain't dead yet. But he's not doing out of, like, I've got to work hard so that I can somehow be raised from the dead. Because he just said in chapter 1, if they strike me dead, I'm better off because I'm going to heaven. He's, he's not doubting that. <clears throat> now, I'm jumping down, like, five verses. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what to come. Again, it's repetitive. He says almost the exact same point in 122. Slightly different context, but he refers to, we're going to have a glory that's amazing, and the Spirit of the living God lives in us as the deposit, as the down payment of that glory. And, and it actually will refer to that also weeks from now. But I want you aware, like, it's almost the exact same phrase. He's repeating it because it's important. We have the Holy Spirit now, which confirms our eternity is secure. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer... I'm going to say that different because I want the emphasis the way I think he means it. We are confident, I say. Okay, because we're always like, well, i got to be a humble, meek person. No. Your humility is you don't rely on yourself, you rely on him. But as long as you're relying on him, be confident. We are confident, I say. I would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. Because he's confident. I, they kill me. You can't threaten me with heaven. I, I'm confident about this. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the part that a lot of my evangelical friends never want to think about this scripture. Rainbows and unicorns, I can do whatever I want because God just loves me the way I am. True, he loves me the way I am. I can't do anything to earn God's love. True. He holds me valuable no matter what happens. My, my behavior doesn't affect my value. True. So he's not going to judge me. False. We actually are judged. And I, I, I don't want to especially, like, even at this Bible school, I'll be teaching that tomorrow. This scripture makes him a little nervous. But I want it clear. We will be judged for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. But he's not talking about sin to damn you. He just finished this whole flow. This whole flow has been, we're looking for the seen and unseen. We are confident. We are built up. Because we know we're going to heaven. This is not a heaven or hell judgment. And I wanted to build it up because I don't want it to sound like, because with my friends in my old denomination, they think I'm kind of doing something tricky. But I want to get, the whole flow he's saying is, man, I'm wearing me in heaven, we preach this, we affirm it, it's awesome. <laughs> but yet we're still judged. But it's not a heaven or hell judgment. And to really drive it home, I want to go farther in the same chapter. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Paul does have a fear of the Lord. There is a place for fear of the Lord. But it's not a cowering, like I'm going to get stepped on like a bug. But he's saying, I, re I realize with awe, Jesus is my Savior. He is my friend. 
but he is also the person who has authority. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. See, he's, he's getting this, and he'll build up more later, is the reason I'm not like these other teachers who are impressing you is I don't freaking care about impressing you because to God is who I is who I uh, God alone is who I need to impress. God alone is the one I'm doing this with, and he's going to judge me, and his judgment is eternal. Again, not heaven or hell, but about rewards and about what we build lasting. <clears throat> and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. So you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. You can't see what's in someone's heart, but this is part of building up, like, are we building with wood, hay, and stubble or things that matter? Are we building things that look good, but they're temporary? Or are you actually helping establish the love of Christ in someone's heart? Are you helping them discover who they are? That's the ministry. <clears throat> and Paul's also kind of reprimanding them, because he's basically saying, and he's even more explicit later, I shouldn't have to defend myself. If you understand this, and those cats are coming in, judging by externals, you should have been the ones defending me. I, again, Paul's relational, but he has candor. So I, you know, maybe when we hear the summary of when you are teaching and when you are part of conflict resolution, you always start small, you always start relational common ground. But you have to eventually get to candor. Like, like you, I, you can't fix things with people by always being soft. There are times you are assertive in the Lord. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. So obviously they're accusing of being out of his mind. If we are in our mind, right, mind is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Again, it's not a fear of heaven or hell. He knows God loves him. But his love of God and him being engaged with God, that love compels him. The love of Christ transforms him, and the love of Christ compels him that I want to tell you guys the full truth. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Again, we are all selves have died. He died for all, so that those who live should not live for themselves, but for them who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And then he says, even though we regarded Christ that way, specifically, you have to remember, Paul's life story is, he thought Christ was the enemy and was persecuting the church till he has an encounter that changes everything. Okay. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, the new creation has come. The old has gone away, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciled to the world in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So again, there's a judgment. But it can't be about your sin because God forgot it all. Even Old Testament scripture says, I, even I am the one who has blotted out all your transgressions in my record book. Okay? Where, where it often gets translated for my own sake. What it really literally means is for my records. So his record book has no recollection of any sin. So when he's saying we're judged, it can't be based on that. Okay, um, yeah, this, this is why I, I didn't put this up there, so I'm going to refer to it because I figured I'd be running out of time. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about this, but in a very symbolic way. 
in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about, I have been a wise and masterful builder. And again, does it sound arrogant? Well, it does if it ain't true. But Paul is like, no, I know who God has made me to be. And I was a wise and master builder. He's referring to when he first came to Corinth. He said, when I came there, I built in you the foundation of Christ. And now others, such as Apollos, have come to build on it. And that's great, as long as they remember you can't have any other foundation but Christ. And now you have to be careful how you build, whether or not it's with gold, with gold, silver, and precious gems, or wood, hay, and stubble. Which is weird, because we aren't building with gems. What he's saying is, because he's bringing it up, is there are things that are tried by fire and made more pure, but they come through fire. There are things that are easy to build with. That doesn't give a story about uh, uh, Tom building their house. Tom and Teresa, but I'll save that joke for another time when they're not here. But wood, hay, and stubble, yeah, you can build it like the three little pigs. You know, they built a house of sticks. They built their house of straw. Easy to build, easy to blow away. Then the one built by something that lasts. And he says, be careful how you build because everything is tried by fire. And he's not picking any. He basically says, we all are going to go through fires. That's his point. We're all going to be tested by fire. But if you don't build in Christ, what you are building is going to get burned up. It is temporary, not eternal. Now, what he says, and he makes it clear, someone who builds wrongly, everything they build will burn. None of that will last. But the builder, the person themselves, will be saved but as though through fire. And we all go through fire. So he's saying, be careful how you build. You want to build connected to Jesus, building up other people's relationship and affection for Jesus. If you build followers of yourselves or you build what's temporary, it all gets judged. And if it's other junk, it doesn't last. You have nothing to show for it in eternity. You'll still be saved, but you got nothing. And Paul's saying, I don't want that. And it's okay. It's like, this isn't selfishness. He wants to build what lasts. And we talked a little bit before, uh, well, Linda brought it up. You know, the train of captives. He later talks about it where he almost says, I want you, you are the things I'm building up. Okay, this is actually from other letters. Because he's saying, if you're built in Christ and established in him, you are the glory I have in heaven. You are what lasts. What lasts is what we build in other people's lives. To quote a very famous prophet, my brother-in-law, Gary, the only thing we're really going to have to carry with us into heaven is the love we've built up in each other. Love is all that's going to last that we carry through. <clears throat> he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. I'm kind of doing this because like, I'm going to finish the chapter so the next person isn't in a weird spot. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. So again, there is this judgment seat. Some people call it the bema seat, and it's just because the Greek word bema is in the name of the seat. Um, I don't want to go, because some people use the Greek and say, yeah, he's talking about the judgment seat in the Olympics, where it's all just about rewards. The reason I don't like to use that term is because actually the Bema seat they refer to is also, yeah, it's used for when you judged Olympic people. It's also used when Pilate was on the throne judging Christ. 
It's also used to win courts. So the Bema Seed is just flat out, it is a judgment seed. We can't say the Greek word doesn't mean that, because it does. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us will receive what is due us for the things done all in the body, whether good or bad. He's not going to curse you. But if we don't build what's good in Christ, we have nothing left. Even if it's just jewels and a crown that we throw at his feet, it's something we want. You know, I, I want to have something to put at the feet of the Lord when he, when he comes to power. I don't want to be empty-handed for him. Now, Paul is saying this for a reason, which I was going to ask you, but I've already kind of answered it for you. Because Paul is obsessed about this unseen and eternal. And his whole point about these impressive leaders is, he's not even saying that like they're damned. What he's saying is, what they're trying to do is fluff. It will not handle the fire. It will show nothing. And he's saying, you're worried about my credibility. Dudes, you, you, don't, you don't even understand my perspective. I'm living by what's unseen. Your opinions don't really even matter to me that much. I have a God who's going to judge everything I've built in you. And with that in my mind, that is going to compel me. I love him so much, I want to have jewels and gold and silver to give him. And that motivates me. My love for him and my love for you motivates me. <coughs> so, I'm um, hopefully because we do have to, we are going to do communion. And when I was thinking about this, the reason why it's weird because I mean we talk about grace, but I keep talking about judgment. That's because as friends, as a community, with other people in our life, not just the ones that aren't here, we do them a disservice if we tell them half truths. Flattery is not affirmation. Affirmation is being honest, and, and we do affirm people. We do build them up. But we also want to prepare each other and call each other to, hey, are we getting consumed in what's temporary? Are we getting consumed in what may look nice here, but it ain't going to last? Or are we going to build relationships that have a love that stand not only the test of time, but the test of outside of time, the test of eternity? So we're going to share the cup, and we're thankful for God's grace and God's power. And we're also drinking with a commitment to each other of, we're going to have candor to help each other live lives in such ways that we will have nothing to be ashamed of at the judgment seat of Christ. That's actually a quote from somewhere else. But it's another line of Paul, is, I want nothing to be ashamed of when I'm in front of that judgment seat. And we can have that, but it's going to take each other. Okay, so just come on up and uh, get the cups.
Okay, yeah, that's fine. Okay. As you can tell, we're the church of smooth transitions. <laughs> we don't live by way of the scene, obviously, on this. <laughs> um, well, Lord, first I just want to say thank you, Jesus. I thank you that you did have your body broken. And God, I ask you to help us to learn how we conform to your suffering so we can live in your power. And God, I, I don't even know what it, what it even looks like to be broken bread for a world, but I know you've called us to complete what you started. So we just commit to you, Lord God, that is your body here. We do want to be broken, and we just surrender to you now. So receive this saying, thank you for being broken body for us. We're also surrendered to you to do whatever you want with our lives. Do I need We thank you, Lord, that you bled for us. And because of that, we are actually face to face with you. We are in your presence. Even when we don't feel, Lord, we are in the Holy of Holies with you forever. And God, again, we are surrendered because we want the whole world to know that you shed your blood for them. We want other people to see this light. We, we pray and speak, God, that you remove the veil, remove the cloudy, all the things that obscure the truth of you and what you've done and who you are. Push back that the whole enemy's blindness and draw people in. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.